Welcome everybody. How you doing today? Y'all doing good? All right, it's the summer, isn't it? It's hot outside and it's cool inside, but I'm glad you're here and we are uh, launching into a new series today. So everybody get a Bible and open it up to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. You know, uh, I, I love a good story. I love stories and uh, seems like the summer is all about stories. You always have a big blockbuster movie that comes out in the summer uh, telling a great story or somebody's buying a, a novel for the summer to read on the beach or, you know, in the, in the mountains or wherever you go. Uh, everybody loves a great story. It's something about stories that cause us to remember things. They lodge in our minds. They, they move us emotionally. Stories do. You could hear a presentation with great content, but if you got a story in it, you can latch on to it. In fact, uh, Donald Miller, who wrote quite a bit, he's written several books, Blue Like Jazz and other books like that, he said this, story is atomic. Uh, it is perpetual energy and can power a city. Story is the one thing that can hold a human being's attention for hours. That's why you can sit through a Star Wars movie for 15 hours, because uh, it's, it's a story that keeps you connected uh, to it, Right? And so, uh, what we're going to do is, over the rest of the summer, we're going to take a look at some of the greatest stories that Jesus ever told. Jesus was a master storyteller. He told lots of great stories. So, we're going to look at some of the stories of Jesus. Now, these stories were often called parables. And uh, in fact, let me, just, let me just define what a parable is. Uh, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So a parable is a story that on the face of it is just kind of a, a simple story of common things that people might experience or see, but, but there is a meaning to it that is spiritual, a meaning to it that is significant. Uh, and we're using the imagery of this parable series to be an iceberg. That's why you see icebergs around. Because an iceberg, they say only 10% of the iceberg is actually visible from the top. 90% of it is under the surface. You don't see it, but it's there. And parables were a lot like that. That Jesus told parables because on the surface there was some simple story that even a child could understand. But there was also underneath of it great meaning that was often hidden from the casual observer. There would be crowds that would come to Jesus, and he would tell a story, and, and those that were just kind of casually attending just there for the show or just there because they were interested, uh, they might only understand the surface part of the story, but those who really had a heart for God, those who were seeking spiritual truth, they would, God would reveal to them deeper meaning. In fact, Jesus said uh, he'd been teaching in parables really fulfilled what Isaiah the prophet said, you will hear, listen and not hear, you will see but not understand. See, people that are casually observing, they only kind of get a glimpse of the story, go, I don't get it, and move on. But those that God's working in their heart, they would understand the deep spiritual meaning of it and be motivated to love God more. So what we're gonna do is in this parable series, we're gonna take some of the common parables of Jesus, but we're not gonna stay at the surface, we're gonna dive down deep and understand maybe the hidden meaning, the least understood meaning of this story and what it means for our walk with God, all right? So we're starting today in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, and we're gonna look at the story of the Good Samaritan. Now hands up, have anybody ever heard 
the story of the Good Samaritan, all right? That's pretty much everybody here, right? Even if you didn't grow up in church, you've heard people say, well, a Good Samaritan stopped by the store the other day and helped so-and-so. Or, you know, you'll, you'll see it on the news here. People talk about a Good Samaritan. Now, if you were to ask a guy on the street, what was the meaning of the story of the Good Samaritan? They would say, the Good Samaritan story teaches us to help people that are in need. If there's somebody in need in front of you, you help them. That's the meaning of the parable. If you were to ask a church historian, what is the meaning of the story of the Good Samaritan? He would give you, well, uh, there are lots of different meanings. He would say in the patristic period, Origen translated it by, an, uh, by, uh, by, by this way. And in the medieval period, it was translated this way. And in more modern times, it's translated this way. There are multiple meanings to the story of the Good Samaritan. If you were to ask a socialist, what's the purpose of the story of the Good Samaritan, he would say that you need to take your wealth and give it to the poor. And that's what motivates our political agenda. But here's the, here's the thing I want you to understand is that you may know the story of the Good Samaritan, but I, I would guess that you may not know the true meaning of the story of the Good Samaritan, that that has been hidden from many people. And I want to unpack it for you today. All right. And so we're going to look at this story. Now, if you want to understand the story of the Good Samaritan, what you've got to do is back up and understand the conversation that preceded the story. And that's found in Luke chapter 10, uh, beginning at verse 25. So if you're there at verse 25, say amen. All right. This is the word of God. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now stop right there. This is, uh, this is kind of late in Jesus' ministry, probably in the last six to nine months of Jesus' life. And in this time period, there's a lot of animosity being built up. Uh, toward Jesus by those that are the religious elite. They didn't like Jesus, didn't like his popularity. They certainly didn't like his messages because it often unmasked them and showed their own hypocrisy. So they were looking for ways to get rid of Jesus. And so you will see multiple times uh, Jewish experts in the law or scribes or Pharisees posing questions of Jesus to try to trap him in some, uh, some problem whereby they could accuse him of a wrongdoing and get rid of him. So that's what's happening here. It says a lawyer approached Jesus. Now he wasn't a prosecutor or he wasn't a uh, civil attorney. He was a Jewish lawyer. He spent his whole life studying the law of Moses. The whole life becoming an expert in the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law. And so he comes to Jesus and he asks him a question. He's not really a seeker, I don't think, because it says he came to test Jesus. He's like, all right, I'm going to see if Jesus knows the right answer. I'm going to see if Jesus gives me the right response. And if not, then maybe I can have some way to approach him or attack him in some way. So he said, uh, teacher, look at it. Teacher, verse 25, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now listen, that's the right question. What, what do I need to do 
to be right with God? What do I need to do to know for sure that I'm saved? Now, I know some people say, well, that's not really the right question because he said, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And, and of course, that's a works kind of thing, but, but you would expect that coming from a Jewish lawyer. That's all he knows is do, 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 do. So this is really coming out of his mindset, but it is the right question. How do I know that I'm saved? How can I be right with God? How can I know that I'm going to have eternity in heaven? It's the same question that uh, the rich young ruler asked. What must I do to have eternal life? It's the same question that Nicodemus, I think, was posing in his mind when he came to Jesus at night. And, and Jesus said, you got to be born again. It's this idea, what do I need to do? Because their mindset, I, I got to do some things to get to heaven. What does God require of me? What does God require of me to have eternal life? That's a great question. By the way, every one of you in this room must answer that question. You have to answer the question, what does God require of me to be saved? What does God require of me uh, in order to get to heaven? That is a fundamental question. Every one of us are going to die one day. Welcome to First Colleyville. We're all going to die, all right? And, and, uh, and, and so how do we know that when that day comes for us, that we will be in heaven? So he asked the right question. He asked it to the right person. He asked it to Jesus, right? That's the right guy to go to. He's asking Jesus this question. Only Jesus can answer this question. So I, I give this guy credit. He brings a question to Christ. And, uh, and I love how Jesus responds to him. Jesus doesn't give him a direct response. Jesus responds to his question with a question, just like good lawyers do. They, they answer a question with a question. So he says, instead of you evaluating my answer, I'm going to ask you a question. Let me evaluate your answer. And he says, uh, he says, so you're the expert in the law. You spent your whole life studying this thing. So what does the law say? What does the law say is required of you to inherit eternal life? And the lawyer quickly comes with an answer right? Yeah, a good lawyer would never ask a question without knowing the answer already to the question. And so he's asking the question and he knows the right answer. And so he quickly uh, says the answer. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, now that's a great answer. That's a good answer. The right question, right person, and right answer. In fact, uh, the first part of that, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that comes from Deuteronomy 6. It's part of the Shema, the great declaration of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You got to love God this way, all right? You got to love God with all that you are. And then he adds to it Leviticus 19, 18, which says you're to love your neighbor as yourself, also a part of the law. In fact, this was such a right answer that later on in Matthew 22, some religious experts come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And do you know what Jesus answered them? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, this is, this is precisely A on the test, A plus tech. I mean, this is the right answer. And so Jesus uh, responds to this guy. I love this. Look, look at how Jesus responds. Verse 28. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. In other words, uh, that's exactly right. You got to love God perfectly and, and love everybody perfectly. Uh, and then you've earned your way to heaven. So just do that. Go ahead. Go ahead. Be perfect. Go ahead. Start now. Being perfect. And then you will get to heaven. You will have earned your way to heaven. That's what the law requires of you is perfection. I don't know if that, how that sits with you, but I, I, there are a lot of people today that feel like that, you know, the way I, 
I get to heaven is I just be a good person, right? I, I mean, I talk about this all the time. People will say this to me all the time. Well, Craig, you know, I, I, I'm okay because I, I go to church and I believe in God and I try to be a good man, good wife, good husband, you know, good, good uh, daughter, son, whatever. I, I try to be nice to people. I'm a good person. I, I believe in God. I'm a good person. Surely that is good enough. And somehow we think that somehow our bad is going to be weighed off by our, our sense of morality or our religious performance. And somehow God's going to tip, look at the scales and go, well, you know, you're not, nobody's perfect, but you've done pretty good. I'll let you on in. Unfortunately, that is nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere. In fact, the opposite is in the scripture. The scripture says you must be perfect in order for you to earn your right by your morality and your goodness into heaven. Because God is perfect and he cannot allow sin in his presence, that, that there is no way that he's going to elect an imperfect person, person into a perfect eternity. There's no way. And so perfection is required uh, by the law. And I'm sure this, this is sinking in. He says, you do this and you will live. All right? He's making it very personal, this guy. All of a sudden now, this is not an intellectual exercise that he, he's learned for the test. Now he's starting to evaluate himself. And it probably what run through his mind is, well, do I love God? Well, all my heart, so my soul. Well, I think I do. I mean, I do my best to keep all the laws and I try to do all the things, that, you know, the, all the rituals and so on. Do I love my neighbor as myself? Well, not so good there. There are a lot of people I don't like. Uh, I don't like Romans. I don't like Gentiles. Certainly don't like Samaritans. There are a lot of people in my own family I don't like. I mean, they're, I don't know. Maybe if there was a narrower definition of neighbor that only included people that are like me, then I could qualify. So Jesus is, he said this, do this and you shall live. And he's moving on. And the, all this is going on in this guy's mind. He goes, whoa, 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 Jesus, uh, I, I got a follow-up question. And that follow-up question is in verse 29. Look at it. And he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now, some people say, well, see, he's trying to justify himself. He's trying to, he's trying to be pompous. I, I, I think he's trying to justify in his own mind that he's okay. He's justifying himself in his own mind. He said, so Jesus, how would you ex exactly define neighbor, right? Because I'm hoping for a narrower definition that would make me okay. And, and I think Jesus sees this guy and he sees the conviction that's starting to turn in his heart and starting to see the spirit of God bringing conviction to his mind. And so Jesus answers that question with the story. Jesus answers that question. See, the problem with this man is that he had an inflated view of his own goodness. He thought he was okay. He, he thought, because I, I try to follow the rules and I try to be a good person and I love a lot of people, then that means that I'm okay, that I've met the standard by which I can get to heaven. That, that was his problem. He had an inflated view of his own goodness. And what he desperately needed was for that bubble to be popped what he needed was for his self-righteousness and his view that he's okay to be smashed so that he understood, I am not okay, I do not love God fully, I do not love my neighbor, and I'm in trouble, and I need a savior. That's what he needs. And so Jesus, in his benevolence and in his goodness, gives him that. 
he, he tells him a story to illustrate his need for a savior. The purpose of the story is not to tell him how to love people along the road. The purpose of the story is to expose his wicked heart and his need for Christ. That's the purpose of the story. Back to the original question, what must I do to be saved? And he thinks he's okay, except for this neighbor part. And so Jesus is going to show him what, does it, what is the standard by which he is being measured. And so Jesus stopped and he turned and he said, let me tell you a story. So let's pick it up there, verse 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him into the inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Now stop right there. Jesus said, let me tell you a story about what God requires. So there was this guy and he was in Jerusalem, and he was going down to Jericho. This is a very common road. Still today, it's, it's still there. You can walk the road. I've actually done it. Walk the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's about 18 miles if you walk the whole thing. There are parts of it that are very dangerous. It is right on the edge of a steep wadi. People fall off on that thing every year. Tourists do and die. I mean, it is a serious thing. They also have lots of caves, natural caves all over the place, which gave it a, a very uh, dangerous reputation. There's a part of this road called the Pass of Blood because so many people were ambushed along the way. Travelers would come in and out of Jerusalem. Robbers knew that they were coming up through there. Many times they brought their offerings and gifts. They were loaded with cash and coin. And so they've made it prime uh, targets for robbers that would want to ambush them. So this man is coming down the road. Now remember, this is a made-up story. This is not an actual event that happened. This is a story Jesus is making up in the moment to illustrate what this guy needs to hear. He said, this guy is coming out of Jerusalem. He's going down this treacherous road and all of a sudden he gets ambushed. He gets, he gets ambushed by robbers. They beat him up. They strip him of everything he's got. They leave him half dead, bleeding on the side of the road. This guy is in a terrible situation. He cannot save himself. He is completely helpless. And the robbers are gone. Now, coming behind this man, at some point, came a priest. Now, the priests were the highest echelon of the spiritual ecosystem. The priests were uh, the ones that represented people to God and God to the people. The priests were the ones that offered the sacrifices. Uh, David divided the priests into 24 sections and they were distributed all over Jerusalem. They would come into the city to, to serve on their tour at the temple twice a year. So this priest had probably done that. He was coming back down, back, going back home. And he sees this fellow man, this other Jewish man, bleeding, hurting on the side of the road. And, uh, and it, Jesus uses very dramatic language. It says, he, he went out of his way to get out of the way. I mean, he like took a big berth around this fellow. He didn't want to have anything. He didn't feel anything for him. He didn't have anything to do with him. He, he just went all the way around and kept moving on. Now, some people say, well, it's because he didn't want to be defiled. Or he didn't want, but remember, this is a made up story. All right? This is a made-up story to tell uh, to, for a specific purpose that Jesus is trying to articulate. 
He's making the point that this guy broke Leviticus 19.18. He did not love his neighbor. He failed to, break, to keep up that. He broke the law of God to love his neighbor. And since he broke the law of God, he now does not love God because he's broken God's law. So he has both broken the law to love his neighbor and broken the, the law to love the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. So the, the highest guy fails. He is completely a lawbreaker. And he goes on his way. Now, after him comes another guy. He's a Levite. Now, the Levites were the helpers of the priests. They were kind of the JV team, all right? They would come alongside and they would help out. They served in the temple. They were also highly respected, very religious people. Surely, this guy is going to get it right. So, he comes up. He sees his fellow man bleeding by the side of the road. But he does just what the priests do. He goes out of his way to get out of the way. And he does not go and help. He breaks Leviticus 19, 18. He does not show love for his neighbor. And therefore, he breaks the law of God, showing he does not love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He is also a lawbreaker. And he goes on his way. So I'm sure that the lawyers listen to this story and all these other people are listening. They're going, man, I mean, the, the highest, most religious people don't match up. They've failed. So who possibly is going to love this guy? Who is going to fulfill the law of God? And who is going to love their neighbors themselves? Who, who's going to be the guy to do it right? And then Jesus says, and then came a Samaritan. <laughs> and that just grated on them something awful. Because everybody knew that the Jews and the Samaritans hated one another. They had a fierce rivalry. In fact, the reason is because of Samaria is kind of the central part of Israel. Back in 722 AD, uh, the, the Assyrians came in and, and took many of them out into bondage, left a few behind. Those that were left behind intermarried with other Gentile nations that the Assyrians backfilled into there. And so what they became was kind of a half-breed and mixed Heinz 57 kind of people uh, that the Jews felt like were insubordinate to them. Not only that, they created their own temple, their own religious system, their own priests, their own laws. They basically uh, created a whole false religion. And so the Jews hated them for that. They thought you are defiling God, you defiled yourself, you're defiling the temple, you're leading people astray. And so there was this heated animosity between Samaritans and Jews. In fact, uh, it, it wasn't uncommon for a Jew to say, uh, if you were... Eating the bread of a Samaritan is worse than eating the flesh of a pig. That's pretty harsh, wouldn't you say? Uh, the Jews didn't even refer to them as a people. They referred to them as a herd. They're just animals. And of course, the Samaritans gave it back too. They, uh, they, they hated the Jews as well. In fact, there's one historical evidence of an event where when all the Jews came together in the Passover, the Samaritans threw dead men's bones into the temple area to defile everyone so that nobody could celebrate the Passover. And so it's just, it was just back and forth, back and forth. Think about Palestinians and Jewish conflict today times a thousand. Think about Hamas and Jews hatred today. You get the picture, the kind of animosity. So the, the hero of the story that Jesus brings down the road is a Samaritan. He said, then came a Samaritan that, that was the enemy of this guy on the road, that hated this guy, and this guy hated him. And what did he do? Well, it says he was moved with compassion. Not only was he moved with compassion, but he stopped and he began to help treat this guy. He offered first aid. He cleansed his wounds with, with oil and, and wine. 
He, uh, he probably got, took a robe and ripped it apart and made bandages of it. And he, and he just treated his wounds right there, got the bleeding stopped, make sure he could breathe. And that would have been enough. I mean, that would have been incredibly gracious. But he didn't stop there. He took this guy and he put him on his own donkey. So now the Samaritan's got to be on foot now. And he begins to walk down this treacherous road with this man on his own animal. And he's protecting him. He's watching him. He's making sure that no robbers come. And he gets him all the way down to Jericho. And that would have been enough just to set him on the side of the road and say, now your people can take care of you. But he doesn't do that. He takes him to an inn. He takes him to a place, it wasn't like the Holiday Inn, it was kind of like this general area where people stay. And he's, he stays the night with this guy. He stays up all night taking care of him, watching over him, making sure he's all right, making sure he's healing up, uh, feeding him, uh, uh, watching over and superintending him. And then after that is over, then he goes even the extra mile and he goes to the innkeeper and he says, listen, I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you some cash, enough for at least two weeks for this guy to stay here. And, and whatever this guy needs, you just run up a tab. And when I come back through on business, I'll take care of it. I mean, the picture here that Jesus paints is over the top grace. Right? Not, not just being kind. Over the top, lavish, above and beyond. Uh, uh, more than anyone would ever do. I mean, it would be like you seeing somebody, some stranger that you hate and that hates you and you take them into your car and you take them to the hospital and you treat them up, you pay the whole bill, you bring them to your house, you watch over them for weeks or months, you do all that. I mean, uh, no, who does this? I mean, who lives like this? Who would ever show this kind of grace and love like this? And the answer is nobody. Nobody does that. Nobody lives like that. That's the point. He's saying, you know, you can be religious, but, but when it comes to dealing with your neighbor, uh, we're more like the priest and the Levite. We're not like this other guy. And if that's the, that's the standard that God wants, perfection, to love uh, unreserved, to love as great as you possibly can, that is a standard. And nobody can meet that standard. Nobody. We are, by nature, selfish, uh, self-centered. We harbor bitterness. We harbor grudges. We hate those who hate us. We lash back. We defend. We retaliate. That's how we operate. And if this is a standard that God has of loving our neighbor, then none of us can meet it. We have all, get this, fallen short of that standard. That's why Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's why in Romans chapter 8 verse 12, it says, none is righteous, no, not one. All have turned aside. Together we have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's why in Romans 3.20, it says that no person can be justified by the works of the law. None of us are good enough to get to heaven. None of us have been, and you, even if you did that one time, that would be required of you to do it all the time, and all of us have fallen short. So when he's looking at this lawyer and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this guy thinks he's got it in the bag. What Jesus is saying is, no, you don't, you, you don't even understand where the scale is. You have so fallen short of it. You have no idea of how wayward your own heart is and how desperate you need, desperately you need a Savior. And then Jesus asked him a question. Look at verse 36. He said, which of these do you think proved to be the neighbor 
to the man who fell among robbers, and he said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Jesus reframed the question. The question wasn't, who, who's my neighbor so I know who I don't have to love? <laughs> the real question is, are you loving up to this standard? That's the question. Are you, are you the neighbor like this? Is that, if you're evaluating yourself, do you love like this? And of course, the answer is no. And he doesn't measure up. And guess what? You don't measure up. And guess what? I don't measure up. None of us do. Jeremiah says that our, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and who can know it? And the point of this story is not to tell you to help people on the side of the road. The point of this story is to show you that you don't help people beside the road, and that's because we have a desperate spiritual need to be changed because we are wayward people. And this is really where the story ends. Jesus says, go and do likewise. And I think this lawyer is hearing this and all of a sudden he's feeling convicted that he doesn't match up, that he is not right with God. And I wish, oh, let me tell you, I wish that this story had a different ending. I wish that the story had a different ending to where at some point the, this lawyer, this old lawyer that now understands and there's conviction that he really doesn't love God and he really doesn't love his neighbors himself. And all of a sudden out of conviction, he realizes that he has no way to inherit eternal life and he comes to Christ and he says, Jesus, I can't do that. I can't go live like that. You tell me to go live like that and I can't do it. I'm a sinful man and, and I have hated others and I continue to do it. I can't change myself and I don't love God. I break God's law and I am in desperate need of forgiveness. I need mercy. Can you help me? I mean, if this guy would have just swallowed his pride, if he'd have forgot who was in the room or who was standing around, if he would have truly humbled himself before God and cried out in that moment, he could have been saved. He could have been changed. His name could have been written in the Lamb's book of life. In that moment, he, he could have become a follower of Jesus. Who knows what God could have done through this man's life if he would have only come repenting to Christ. But you know what? He didn't do that. He heard what Jesus said. His heart was convicted of his sin. And he just went the other way. Probably looked down, maybe considered, weighed his options, and then walked away. And just tried to be better. My friends, I don't want you to make that terrible, tragic decision. The story is not about helping people. I mean, yes, we should do that. Other passages in the Bible teach us that. But this story is about our own need for God that we're not good enough. I can't earn my way to heaven. I can't be good enough. And even if I could be perfect from this point forward, I haven't been perfect up to this point. I, I can't be religious enough. What we need is Christ. In fact, if there's anybody that we resonate with in this story, is the man on, we resonate with the man on the side of the road because we are that person that is bloodied and beaten and unable to save ourselves. And then here comes uh, uh, the law, but it can't save us. And here comes morality, but it can't save us. 
And what we desperately need is a person that we've hated. We've told God, you can get out of my life. God, I'm going to live my life the way I want. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And I don't need you telling me how to live. And yet Christ came for us. When we were still sinners, Christ died for us, the Bible says. And Christ came. And he came right to where we are. And he went to Calvary. And he died for our sin on the cross. And he was buried. And he rose again on the third day. And he said, if anyone will recognize their sinfulness, recognize their heart need for a savior and turn to me, I'll heal you. I'll forgive you. I'll change you. I'll give you eternal life. See, you can't earn eternal life, but you can receive eternal life. It's a gift purchased by Jesus himself. That's the point of the story. And the question is, has that happened to you? You may be very religious. You may have attended church your whole life. You may, may be a really great person. Everybody thinks you're great, but God knows your own heart. That your own morality and your own standard is not meeting God's standard. That you need a savior. You need a righteousness that is not your own that can be given to you by faith in Jesus.